I'm Cameron Silsby, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part nine in our series, An Alternative Society. Being around people in community and church brings with it the inevitability of conflict. This was no different for Jesus or the early church. How can we navigate conflict in a way that brings about formation? And from uh, 1991 to 2022, it's estimated that the U.S. has been in 251 military encounters that involved violence to some degree. Uh, Whether it's uh, a war or a one-off drone strike, 251 separate military encounters. That's on average a new military encounter every six weeks or so, over a 31-year span. It's probably no surprise that the U.S. spends more money on the military than any other country in the world. And what may be surprising is that the U.S. spends more than the next 10 highest spending countries combined. Conflict for Americans is as normalized as an oil change in your car. Power, domination, and control are a way of life through conflict. But as you know, uh, conflict isn't just an American thing. We have our own flavor of it, uh, but it really is a human thing. Archaeologists found a human skull with what appears to be intentional, lethal, blunt force trauma injuries to the face. This skull is estimated to be around 430,000 years old. What? And a Christian might sigh and say, well, yeah, that's, uh, that's sin for you. And we agree with that. And also point out that we're a Protestant church that is not Catholic due to a theological conflict, which came after a previous theological conflict that split the Catholic and Orthodox churches. Human conflict is an everyday reality as individuals in a relationship, as people who follow Jesus, and as people who live in this culture. In uh, 1921, a student of the psychologist Sigmund Freud by the name of Jacob Moreno created what became known as the empty chair technique. Uh, The psychologists Fritz and Laura Pearls later pioneered and popularized the technique in their gestalt therapy. The empty chair technique consists of a client sitting next to an empty chair and imagining a person they have unfinished business with in their lives. Uh, Maybe this person they are imagining is far away, disconnected from them, or has died. It's a therapeutic tool that can be really helpful in saying what has gone unsaid and exploring what it's like for the client to say those things. Oftentimes, what has gone unsaid has to do with a relational wound, a fracture, harm that was unaddressed or unaccounted for relationally, relational conflict. So we need to say something to an empty chair. In 2015, I sat in a therapist's office with a therapist sitting across from me. And to my left was an empty green wing-back chair. I can still like see it in my mind. I was encouraged to imagine my dad sitting in the chair, a man who had wreaked havoc and destruction on my family and whom I hadn't seen since I was seven or eight years old. I was mad, hurt, and confused and I hated doing the empty chair thing. It felt like such a put on. I told myself I was only doing it so the therapist wouldn't feel stupid for suggesting it. (laughs) Yet, 
uh, lo and behold, as I spoke the words I had wanted to say to my dad, tears flowed down my cheeks. I couldn't even finish saying everything I wanted to say. Um, I composed myself by the end of the session and walked out of the building and thought, well, that was stupid. We are wrapping up our annual vision series tonight. Uh, over the last two months, we've been talking about being a part of God's family, of being a part of the church and community, and we conclude the series tonight by discussing the inevitability of conflict in our lives and community. And really, uh, we could probably do a whole series on conflict. So if you want to hear one, make sure all of you guys in Van City communities get in lots of fights over the coming year and you'll force our hand. <laughs> in all seriousness, uh, tonight we'll work through some Bible, hopefully add some clarity to an important aspect of conflict, and then talk about what it means for us. Does that sound good? You guys up for that? Cool. Okay. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed and arrested, he washed the disciples' feet. Uh, John 13 captures the scene, the, the text that Sarah just read a bit ago, and John makes sure that we know that Jesus washed all the disciples' feet, including Judas, who was about to betray him. John recounts the story in such a way that you can't miss it. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I set an example for you that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Right after Jesus says these words, he then acknowledges the impending betrayal. He knows what's about to happen to him and yet still chooses to wash Judas' feet, which is a powerful gesture of love towards someone who would choose to hand Jesus over to a brutal execution at the hands of the Roman Empire. There is a gravitas to Jesus' actions that, that reverberates. Jesus washing the feet of Judas. Jesus asking God to forgive the people who are crucifying him. Jesus forgiving Peter for his betrayal. Jesus has this way about him, treating people who hurt him in a certain way. And he was no stranger to conflict. Uh, whether it was debating and challenging the religious leaders or facing the painful betrayal of a close friend, he navigated the conflict or the potential for conflict almost constantly during his ministry. He wasn't just navigating conflicts either. He was affected by them as any person is. He felt the conflicts. If we romanticize the early church, we miss that conflict, the co that conflict is complicated as a follower of Jesus. Uh, Paul wrote this beautiful section of scripture to the church in the city of Philippi. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. It's inspiring and challenging, and if you could imagine a church living this ideal out, it would be powerful. What we miss is some of the context of the letter 
potentially. So Paul wrote that in Philippians 2, and then a little later, he writes this in Philippians 4, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Suntuke to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my coworkers whose names are in the book of life. We have no idea what was happening between Euodia and Suntuke. Uh, the best guess is that they are important members or even leaders of the church in Philippi. And I can't help but think that, that Paul had them in mind when he wrote that beautiful section in Philippians chapter 2. There was conflict. There was need for mediation. It doesn't seem like Paul was interested in sorting out who was right or who was wrong in the letter. These leading women needed a reminder of who Jesus is and, and help to move past their conflict. And we have no idea how things went. Maybe they sorted things out, maybe they didn't. But Paul himself, the guy encouraging Euodia and Suntuke to move past their conflict, wasn't immune to conflict himself. Uh, the book of Acts records one such conflict. And interestingly, interestingly uh, Acts was written by Luke, uh, a close companion of Paul's. So while we read this, please realize that Paul wanted this to be included. In Acts 15, it says, sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, who was a close friend and, and missionary partner with Paul, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Notice that Luke puts it in, in such a way that it's, it's not clear who's right or wrong. Uh, Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches." Close friends who had been missionary partners fall out and go their separate ways. And if anyone is really itching to keep score, uh, you know, there are indicators in some of Paul's later letters that he and Barnabas eventually reconciled to some extent. And by the end of his life, John Mark uh, was one of Paul's companions. So I guess Barnabas was right. I don't know. Uh, but uh, none of that is in Acts. We have no idea if there was a complete reconciliation between Paul and Barnabas. We don't know if one of them sinned against the other one in their dispute. We just don't know. But we do know that conflict happened within the group of first-generation Christians and amongst some of its leading, most influential people. It's interesting that, that conflicts recounted in the scriptures many times don't end with a beautiful reconciliation moment or a pronouncement about who was right and who was wrong. It should not surprise us when we have conflict in our lives and even within our own fancy communities and church. The church is not immune to conflict, just as Jesus was not immune, just as Paul or the early church were not immune. But saying that it shouldn't surprise us doesn't make it all better. It's still hard or painful or disappointing or frustrating, and navigating conflict is just, it's not an easy task. It requires us engaging our spirituality, our thinking, and our feeling. Our physicality, our bodies can 
feel the conflict. What also can be challenging is simply knowing what you should do when there is conflict, what, what our responsibility is. Conflict in, in church or in our Van City community oftentimes reveals how we've practiced conflict in our relationships in life. Whether that's our family as we grew up, close friends, coworkers, bosses, teachers, systems, spouses, the list could go on. Conflict can involve power dynamics and our expectations for others or ourselves. We navigate conflict in a lot of different scenarios and situations. And then we take all that and show up to our Van City community or church on a Sunday evening. And we're called to live out a certain standard for conflict, even if it's not what we practiced previously. Let me use a, a couple of hypothetical scenarios to help explore this idea of conflict with you all. Um, granted, they're a bit silly, um, but they're intended to help us kind of conceptualize navigating conflict in a way that isn't referring to any particular situation, at least none that I'm aware of. I've been a uh, pastor over advanced City communities for like seven years. I've heard a lot of things. I don't think I've heard about this one. But if, if this has happened in your community, I'm very sorry, I'm not, I really am not thinking of you as I bring this up. Are you guys good with that? Okay. Someone signs up to bring a salad to community for the meal. As you go to dish up salad, you notice tomatoes all through the salad. Uh, your face burns a bit and your muscles tighten slightly. You hold back a scoff. You've told the person you hate tomatoes. Great, now you can't eat the salad and you're le left fuming for at least part of the evening. Does this tomato adding person need to be confronted? <laughs> yes, wow. <laughs> That was solid. Maybe this is something that's happened in community before. My gosh. <laughs> is this a tomato-themed conflict? Or do you need to be confronted in your attitude as you fume? Do you need to forgive this person, or do you need to repent? Now, raise your hand if you think... I'm joking. No, no. Uh, I mean, it's tomatoes and salad, but it's it's kind of not completely straightforward. Well, um, what if the above scenario was exactly the same, except that instead of you having a preference about tomatoes, you're actually highly allergic to tomatoes, dangerously so. You've told the person multiple times, and, and now for your safety, you choose not to eat that night and, and try to stay clear from other people's tomatoes. You're mad, disappointed, hurt, you're left fuming and nursing your pain, separating yourself from the group for the evening. Does this tomato-bringing person need to be confronted? Do you need to forgive them? Are you being realistic in what you expect of them? Should you repent for fuming? Should you ever eat something they bring to community? <laughs> Again, have a bunch of fights over the next year, and maybe we'll take a, a series to cover the tomato situation in more depth. Tonight, I want to zero in on a really big concept that often comes up for Christians who are navigating conflict, whether conflict within uh, the church or in other relationships. The goal is, is that by clarifying this concept, it will help you navigate conflict in whatever situation you find it, including within church or community. Forgiveness. 
Uh, forgiveness is a word that's used a lot in conflicts, especially in Christian circles. There are some popular platitudes about forgiveness floating around. One is, if you don't forgive, God won't forgive you. Matthew chapter 6, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Or one that's essentially, you know, forgive the person like God forgave you. Colossians 3, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Last one, forgive and what? Forget, yeah, forget. That one isn't in the Bible, though. So let's talk about forgiveness. Um, I'm going to be borrowing from Byron uh, Keller, a trauma therapist in Portland who has created a workshop centering on forgiveness and reconciliation. Um, forgiveness is many times much more complicated than what is presented, not just experientially, but biblically as well. To start with, uh, forgiveness could be summed up with the simple idea of release. You are releasing some, someone from what they owe you due to the harm they caused you. You release them from your attempts at justice or vengeance, and more on that in a bit. A common text people cite when thinking about forgiveness as a follower of Jesus is Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 and 22. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Okay, Jesus teaches that forgiveness has to happen endlessly. Uh, when he says 77 times, uh, you kind of think of it uh, akin to our word infinity, right? There, are, there is no limit to the amount of forgiveness. So if that person in your community brings tomatoes, you are required to forgive them as many times as it takes. End of story, right? Well, uh, Luke records similar words of Jesus, but a little bit different in Luke chapter 17. So, watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them, and if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. Okay, a, a little bit different. Uh, if your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them, or another way to say that is to bring it to their attention in a very direct, explicit way. Then forgive them if they what? repent. Interesting that here Jesus adds a condition to the forgiveness, if they repent. Not so straightforward in the Bible, huh? <laughs> it might be helpful to think of forgiveness as having two factors to it, the debt and the relationship. We are told by Jesus to release the debt the person has caused by their actions, the hurt, the pain, the harm, the loss, we are called to release the person for what they owe us because of what has happened. Now, this is actually for our benefit. Uh, the desire for justice and for wrongs to be righted is not a bad thing. Again, it is not a bad thing to want justice. Our desire for justice and for wrongs to be righted can be something that reflects God's de desire for justice and for wholeness. The problem for us is twofold. We are not objective arbiters of justice, especially when we're personally involved as the offender or the injured party. 
Secondly, we, often, we are often powerless to enact restorative justice, which is a justice that restores a loss rather than merely punishing the offender. We are typically powerless to do this. Forgiveness releases you from pursuing justice on your behalf. It instead entrusts God to carry out justice and frees you to keep on living your life. Paul puts it like this in his letter to the church in Rome. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but be careful what, to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Now, uh, a caveat that needs to be said at this point. Uh, this does not mean crimes are not reported. Abuse, sexual assault, domestic violence, and so on. Those crimes need to be reported to the proper authorities. When we do so, we are giving over our pursuit of justice to the legal system that asks us to report these crimes. You don't act as the judge and the jury if you press charges for sexual assault. And forgiveness is still pursued in the most heinous of acts, again, for the benefit of the victim of those acts. Even if the offender is convicted and faces punishment of some type, that does not replace what you've lost. The sense of safety or well-being or agency that was taken from you. The time and painful emotions, God invites you to release spending your life trying to recoup those things from the offender. It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. God will take up the cause of justice on your behalf. You don't just release it, you hand it over to him to take care of. Forgiveness, though, is a bit more complicated than just releasing a debt. It involves another person. You don't forgive an earthquake or cancer. You forgive a person who hurts you. It seems like the relational aspect of forgiveness can be really complicated. I mean, just re recall the scriptures involving Suntuke and Euodia or Paul and Barnabas. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them, and if they repent, forgive them. Jesus' point here isn't to give people a way out of forgiveness, out of releasing someone from the debt they owe. His point here is that sin can rupture a relationship even between a brother or a sister. The goal is for sin to stop through rebuking and for the person to repent. Then the relationship can be restored. So if this uh, repentance is, is kind of part of the deal, what exactly is it? Because I could certainly think up a bunch of hoops for someone to jump through and label that repentance, but really what I'm doing is punishing them and calling it my requirements for repentance. Repentance is a public change of life. It's not a secret. See, baptism and communion, it's not only words, but it does involve speaking and communicating remorse and confession for wrongdoing. Words are, are carried out in tandem with the decision to turn one's actions in a different direction and begin to do so day by day. It does not mean perfection. It does not mean there won't be struggles to maintain the changes uh, in behavior. Uh, 
It does not mean that there is an instantaneous, complete transformation. We keep needing God's forgiveness after we repent and turn to him because we keep blowing it in some way. To say it simply, repentance includes words and it includes a change in behavior. It's a way of accounting for the relational damage that has been caused and seeking to repair it. As much as we'd all like it to be the case, relational repair generally doesn't just happen. It has to be pursued intentionally. When we feel pressured by others or our own ideals to rush to forgive and reconcile with someone who has wronged us without repentance from the person, it's not uncommon to feel a strong resistance in this scenario. Forgive like God forgave us. What did Jesus say to people when he came declaring the kingdom? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. God requires our repentance to enter his kingdom. Not perfection, not having any of our ducks in a row. He wants us to acknowledge our sin and commit to turning our lives in a different direction. He doesn't withhold his forgiveness until we've attained certain behavioral changes. He doesn't expect us to be able to articulate all of the ways that, he, that we've wronged him. He doesn't expect perfection, but he does expect us with the empowerment of his spirit to enter into this process of repentance. Forgive like God forgave us. Is there repentance, remorse, and a commitment to change behavior? This um, also, I think, needs to be said, just as an aside. Forgiveness does not equal trust. Forgiveness does not equal reconciliation. Reconciliation does not uh, equal trust. You can forgive someone who repents. There can be reconciliation, and the relationship is immediately closer. Or there can be reconciliation, and the relationship can take some time to get back to the intimacy it had previously. Or depending on the nature of the harm and, and situation, you can forgive the person but not trust them again in certain ways. You can forgive someone, and since reconciliation takes two people, you are unable to be reconciled to them due to unrepentance. Again, not because of unforgiveness or a desire to punish the person, you've forgiven them. There just can't be reconciliation in this particular situation until there is remorse and repentance. And remember, even if there is eventually reconciliation, it does not mean you have to trust the person. Maybe they shouldn't watch your kids. Maybe they shouldn't have access to your finances. Maybe you can't trust them with some of your struggles or pain. Early on in my marriage, um, when my wife Hannah would bring something to my attention that I had done that hurt her, I would say, I'm sorry. And she would say something that would just absolutely drive me crazy. Actions speak louder than words. Um, in other words, she wanted a change of behavior, not just remorse. And uh, she was right. Uh, don't tell her I said that, though. Um, I would rush to apologize for something because I wanted to minimize the conflict and get it done and over with. She wanted repentance. Now, we were in our early 20s, so I'm not saying you should say that to people in your life. Uh, we occasionally say it to each other these days, 
but it's just as a joke. We just bust up laughing when one of us says it. Uh, we're on the same page about the difference between remorse and repentance. We have a lot better ways of talking about that stuff if we feel dismissed by the other person. Um, but if I had refused to repent and would have continued in behavior that was hurtful to Hannah, that would have damaged our relationship. The way we would relate to one another would necessarily have to take into account this unrepentant, ongoing behavior. Now, uh, let's circle back to the tomatoes. We just can't get away from them. Uh, even with a concept of forgiveness that helps clarify the releasing and relational aspects of it, uh, we can still apply it in, let's just say, some interesting ways. So, you know, the person brings the tomatoes that you are deathly allergic to, and you address them directly. It's totally fine. You don't worry about the tomatoes. It's all good. All is forgiven. Don't sweat it. And the person shrugs and says, oh, cool, thanks, okay. And everyone moves on, except you are then left to dread each week's food, wondering if there will be a threat to your well-being hiding in the prepared meal at community. I suspect I would eventually receive an email detailing a medical emergency you had at community while eating a dish you didn't realize had tomatoes in it. Hopefully everything turns out okay for you. Or the person has uh, brought the salad full of tomatoes that you hate. You address the person directly. I've told you I don't like tomatoes, but you put them all through the salad and now I don't get to eat. The person looks at you and says, uh, I hear you, but everyone else likes tomatoes, so I figured you could just eat other stuff. And now you, as the offended one, now have justification. There is no repentance. You can send me an email in the morning asking to join a new community. Cut this person out of your life until they see their wrongdoing. You're entitled to do that, right? On my end of things, receiving an email requesting a new community over tomatoes, I'd probably start my response with, uh, so help me understand why this has hurt you so deeply. Conflict, forgiveness, repentance, reconciliation, all of them will reveal things about you and about me, whether we're the victim or the offender. Often we think the act that caused harm as a revelation about the offender's character, who they are, something is wrong with them. Or we think of someone's oversized reaction against a wrongdoing as re revelatory. Something is wrong with them, they are overreacting. Conflict reveals a lot about the offender. It re reveals a lot about the injured person. And it reveals a lot about the people around the situation, whether it's a family, friend group, or a church. We live in a culture that is almost constantly in conflict with other cultures. We come from a faith that has a long history of its followers who fight, divide, and attack each other. We are a people that have developed developed a technique involving an empty chair to deal with relational hurts. My experience of the empty chair was helpful and healing in some ways. I've appreciated what happened in that room uh, that evening back in 2015. What I didn't get to experience though was looking my dad in the eyes and saying what I said. I didn't get to experience the rush of emotions as, as I tried to articulate what I meant in a way that he could understand. I didn't have to be self-conscious about a quivering voice and chin. I didn't have to wade through the tension of wondering how he would react to what I said. 
I didn't have to listen to what he had to say back to me. I didn't have to look him in the eyes and say, I forgive you, dad. I didn't have to figure out what reconciliation and boundaries might look like. I, I didn't get to navigate conflict with him. I bring my own experience of conflict or lack thereof into community, into my marriage, into my job for the church. I wish I was the experienced expert who knows the right thing to do in every situation, but I'm just not. And I suspect I will probably never be. It's why I would watch a workshop on forgiveness and reconciliation. I have so much to learn about myself and others and how to navigate conflict for myself and how to help others navigate conflict in a way that honors Jesus. I'm trying to live faithfully to Jesus through all sorts of conflict, looking people in the eyes, feeling the rush of emotions through my body, navigating when to speak and when not to speak, choosing forgiveness again and again, sometimes with beautiful stories of meaningful conversations and restored relationships. And sometimes with stories that seem to have no resolution, no answer to who's right and who's wrong, and very little hope in ever getting a sure answer. What I and we have through all of it is a God who redeems and forgives. Conflict has been some of the most painful moments of my life where I have been deeply hurt and where I have deeply hurt others. But it's also been, I think, the most fertile ground for spiritual growth that I've had in my life. Navigating forgiveness, repentance, reconciliation, enemy love and turning the other cheek, blessing those who have done me wrong. So you remember that text from Romans about, you know, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Let me add the next couple of verses to that. So do not take revenge, my friend, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Love it, love it. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I can pray to God to avenge my pain and sense of injustice. I can do that pretty well. Feeding my enemy, giving them something, something to drink, blessing and not cursing them, that's hard. I found uh, Catholic theologian Ronald Rollheiser's uh, idea of blessing and cursing so helpful since, you know, the people who have hurt me typically don't need me to feed them or give them a drink. Um, he writes this about cursing. Cursing is what we do when we look at someone whom we do not like and think or say, I wish you weren't here. I hate your presence. I wish you'd go away. Cursing is what we do when we are affronted by the joyous screams of a child and we say, shut up, don't irritate me. Cursing is what we do when we look at someone and think or say, what an idiot. Cursing is what we do whenever we look at another person judgmentally and think or say, who do you think you are? You think, of, you think you've got talent, you don't, you're full of yourself. And the flip side, he says this about blessing. Anthropologists tell us that there are three components to a blessing. To bless someone is to see and admire that person, speak well of him or her, and give away some of your life so that he or she might have more life. 
And this points to the fact that conflict, forgiveness, reconciliation, all of it is very emotional. It comes with a lot of emotions, sometimes incredibly strong emotions, sometimes conflicting and confusing emotions. Sometimes it makes you want to numb your emotions at any price. My emotions can scream at me when I see the person who has hurt me. Curse them. Make sure they know you hate their presence. Make sure they know you're still hurting. Hurt them so that maybe they'll know how it feels to be the hurt one. Or maybe my emotions, in a panic sort of way, say to me, it's fine, everything's fine, you don't feel angry, you don't feel hurt, think about something else, think about anything else, everything is okay and nothing is wrong here. It's interesting that many times we associate the quality or reality of our forgiveness to how we emotionally feel toward the person we have forgiven. You say something, you pray something, you write something along the lines of, I forgive you. But then a day later, a week later, a year later, or maybe even just an hour later, you're angry again. You're disgusted with the person again. You feel ashamed or betrayed or frustrated all over again. And often the response is, well, I guess I didn't really forgive them. And I'd love to encourage us all with this reminder. Um, forgiveness is not a one-time event. It's a choice. And it's one, as a follower of Jesus, you choose over and over again. You release over and over again. Remember, Jesus had something to say about that. You forgive them, and then the next day you choose forgiveness again, and then the next day again. You choose not to try to grasp back onto the debt of pain you feel they owe you. You choose to release it again and again. Sometimes our emotions are telling us something. Forgiveness is not a one-time event. It's more like an onion with layers. You forgive, and then sometimes you realize a new depth to the loss you suffered because of the actions of the person, and you have a new layer of forgiveness to explore. Uh, I forgave my dad in 2015, and then when I became a dad and experienced the delight of my daughters, I had to process a new layer of loss and pain. Uh, not just the harm he had done to me, but the joy I had missed out on by not having a good, present dad. I had to forgive him not only for what he had done, but what he had not done for me. Emotions that came seemingly out of left field eventually alerted me to this, you know, a, a slight depression and anxiety about being a good dad to my girls, catching myself thinking uh, about my childhood more than usual, kind of a, a longing and emptiness that I couldn't quite define. Our emotions tell us something. Conflict gives us an arena to help teach us to listen to our emotions have compassion for ourselves, and also teach us not to allow our emotions to be our boss. You know, uh, you're seething at someone, and then you make that passive-aggressive cutting comment, or, or maybe you just explode at them. And then afterward, there's regret and shame, increased relational damage, you know, things you can't unsay, or even just missed opportunities to say some good things. Or maybe you feel so hurt that you decide to withdraw, putting up walls between you and others so that you can nurse those feelings. And then after a time, you realize that you're lonely. Our feelings tell us stuff, but they're not supposed to be our boss. 
And if I want to be the kind of person who blesses rather than curses those who hurt me, I can't let my emotions be the boss. My emotions will most often lead me to curse. I have to make choices based on my values, based on my desire to follow Jesus faithfully. I see the person who hurt me, who I think wronged me, and I get angry. I feel pressure in my chest and the tension in my face as my smile wants to turn into a sneer. My heart might start to beat faster. Occasionally, my mouth might get a bit dry. And then in my best moments, I catch myself and pray something along the lines of, Jesus, I've forgiven this person, and I want to reaffirm that forgiveness. Please bless them, whatever that looks like. It seems like a part of me wants to seek justice or wants to make them hurt or wants to be heard or vindicated by someone. I just want to let all of that go right now. Help me, Jesus, to treat this person how you'd like me to treat them. Sometimes my emotions feel more positive after a prayer like that. Sometimes the anger or resentment or scorn still remains, but it's almost always easier to choose my reactions to a person based on my values rather than my emotions after a prayer like that. It's almost always easier to bless rather than curse after that. Our spiritual formation involves our emotional maturation. I hope in a few decades my formation leads me to more easily bless I hope that a disposition of cursing becomes as unnatural as trying to breathe underwater. I hope that our church, your community, and whatever might part to play in your life helps form you in this way as well. And I have some hopes for our church in light of conflict. I hope we continue to grow in our willingness to hear from each other how the other person experiences us. So often how a person experiences us is not how we experience ourselves. Sometimes this is a positive thing, as in people see us as lovely and a delight to be around. And sometimes people experience us in ways that are confusing and hurt our sense of self. It doesn't mean they're right, and it doesn't mean they're wrong. I just hope we can hear from each other and sincerely consider how people experience us. It seems to me like over the past seven years at our church, this has been one of our challenges when conflict arises. I hope we can grow into people who are willing to be wronged. What I mean by that is that we are not a people who tend to keep score. That when appropriate, we know how to let things go that ultimately aren't that important that we can learn how to navigate our expectations of others and how they fail to, make, uh, to meet those expectations with grace and mercy, not because people demand us to in order to keep the peace or because we want to avoid conflict, but out of a sense of generosity and compassion for those around us. I hope we grow into people who are willing to accept people around us who are quite frankly bad at conflict and forgiveness and blessing people who are learning and relearning how to do this, people who have never done it before, not dismissing, explaining away, or making excuses for inappropriate behavior, but being a community that meets those things with love, patience, and compassion, and wisdom as people are pointed forward to the way of Jesus, not being met with contempt or scorn or harshness. I hope this for all of our sakes. Lastly, I really hope 
you don't end your time at Van City, whether that's in a month or in 50 years, having a long list of people you need to work through hurt and conflict with from your time here. But by then it's too late. So I guess you would sit in a therapist's office with an empty chair next to you, and you would begin working through the list of people who have hurt you in some way. May we be people who look each other in the eyes and share how we've been hurt or disappointed. Look each other in the eyes and communicate remorse. Look each other in the eyes and live as people who forgive and as people who have been forgiven. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.